Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 2 Samuel 15, verse 1, through to chapter 16, verse 14. But I'd like us to first listen to Psalm 3. You can turn there if you want to. You might want to. It's page 418 in the black small print church Bible. Psalm 3 is where I want to begin, and you'll know why we're starting with Psalm 3 as soon as you read the heading. Because the heading or title of Psalm 3 reads, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Which is what 2 Samuel 15 and 16 are all about, of course. So this is going to be helpful. Ready? Here's Psalm 3. Listen to David. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Only, if you've been with us over the last few weeks at Christ the King, perhaps the most remarkable thing about Psalm 3 at this point of our story is that it's not what we've come to expect of David, right? Because in Psalm 3, we find faith. And faith is what we feel like we've been missing in David recently, if you've been traveling with us in this part of 2 Samuel. In Psalm Psalm 3, David's foes are many. They say there is no salvation for him in God, but David trusts in the Lord. He cries out to the Lord, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And we're just not expecting that. At least I wasn't. There was a time we did. There was a time when David had patiently waited and refused to take power from Saul, even as he knew he was anointed to be the king. There was a time after he had become king that David's kingdom had embodied something of the greatness of the kingdom of God, precisely because David had demonstrated this kind of trust in the Lord. You recall the high point. I'm sure it was back in 2 Samuel 8, verse 15, where the text there said, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. But things had changed 
David had taken Bathsheba. David had taken her husband's life in 2 Samuel 11. David fell. And even though the Lord had put away David's sin, that grievous sin, in 2 Samuel 12, remarkably, there were still consequences. David's kingdom would never be the same. And through Nathan the prophet, the Lord had told David in chapter 12, verse 11, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. If you've been with us recently, you know the evil came. David's oldest son, Amnon, raped his half-sister, Tamar, resulting in Amnon's murder by his half-brother, Absalom. And all of that, we said, had to be seen as the consequences in some level of David's sin. Only all of that wasn't the end of it. We've seen how David himself, evidently weakened by his own failures, had become seemingly incapable of acting to judge or to discipline his sons. He became angry, but he did nothing, first regarding Amnon's sexual violation and then regarding Absalom's deadly violence, the result of it being 2 Samuel 15 through 2 Samuel 19, the account of Absalom. Absalom is David's oldest surviving son now. Last week in chapter 14, we considered how Absalom, after he had fled for two years, had been brought back to Jerusalem, and then how Absalom had forced his own formal reconciliation to his father five years after he had killed Amnon. So, When we turn the page to chapter 15, we're more or less expecting what comes next from Absalom. But I'm suggesting to you that we're not quite expecting what comes next from David. Now, the passage is very lengthy. Anna read it very well. But as she read it, you doubtlessly felt that it just contains this mountain of details, right? and names and references to previous episodes in Samuel, and there's a lot. There's just a lot going on there. Some of all of that we'll spend time on. Some of it we just won't. As we try to keep the shape of the sermon to follow the text relatively simple, I want to talk about just the two divisions in our chapter as the main dividing point of the sermon. First is the rebellion of Absalom, of course in chapter 15, verses 1 to 12. Secondly, then, is this amazing narrative of the exile of David out of Jerusalem that begins in verse 13 of chapter 15 and goes all the way to verse 14 of chapter 16. Now, I want to say that the overall picture, if you read this or heard it read carefully, the overall picture of this is one of great sadness. There's much weeping, there's much shedding of tears in this passage. I would suggest to you that this is perhaps David's darkest day as king. But, somewhat surprisingly, we find that it would be in the midst of that darkness that David's faith reawakens. 
And as we see that happening in our passage, I think there will be various lessons for us to consider as we as we trace it. But we'll come to that in a bit. Let's take verses 1 to 12 of chapter 15 first. Absalom's rebellion. I'll try and be brief because I don't know that I have to say very much. The very end of chapter 14 simply says, and the king kissed Absalom, and our hearts all sank last week at that point. Then chapter 15, verse 1, after this it says, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. (laughs) I mean, this one who had spent two years in exile and then after returning to Jerusalem had laid pretty low for, for a few more years. Now Absalom here is bursting upon the scene right in a carefully designed public image campaign. He's already popular. Now he's making his next move. There was no practical purpose for Absalom or for any king in Israel to have a chariot. It'd be of little use in the mountainous terrain that surrounds Jerusalem. This is about making an impression. Although it may be even more significant than that. Because Israel wasn't supposed to have chariots. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Moses had warned in Deuteronomy 17 that Israel's king must not acquire many horses for himself. Why? Because kingship in Israel was not to mimic the kingship of the surrounding nations. Israel was to trust the Lord. Samuel, even back in 1 Samuel 8, had said that a king like all the nations would be marked by chariots and horsemen who run before him. So Absalom wasn't just showing off. His was a deliberate plan to undermine the political authority of his father and to secure a following among the people for his own royal ambitions. And the pattern he follows is that of the kings of the nations. Now, not only did Absalom challenge that military tradition of Israel, he also sought to undermine the confidence of the people in David's competence as the chief legal officer. Verse 2, Absalom used to rise early, stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king. To hear you. Now, we don't for sure know to what degree Absalom's criticism here of David's administration was valid or not. But my money is not on trusting Absalom to be telling the truth. Because it's not really very subtle what he's up to, I don't think. Look at verse 4. Oh, that I were judging the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. But you see, now we're in the era where the judge is the king. Maybe what you really need is a King Absalom, guys. But careful, because Absalom isn't even promising justice in the way we think of it. Absalom had no interest in justice, not like David had, at least formerly had, in chapter 8 of 2 Samuel. 
Absalom wanted the support of the crowd and he promised whatever it took to get it. I mean, you read that carefully. It doesn't even sound like he heard the case before he declared the validity of their position. Absalom simply never met a plaintiff with whom he didn't agree. He was unscrupulous, cynical, and absolutely indifferent to truth. And it worked. Verse 6 says, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. But that doesn't mean Absalom captured their affections. That's an idiom in Hebrew. It means Absalom duped them. He tricked them. It was all a sham. Eventually, the time comes for Absalom then to make his move, verse 7. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. In Hebron? Really? In Abraham's town, in the place where David first became king of Judah, remember that? And later then was declared king of all Israel? Now, I don't know how to answer for you how David could have possibly in this moment been so naive or so inattentive not to see that his ambitious son organizing a religious ritual in Hebron was up to something. I mean, at least back when in chapter 13 it was about the sheep shearing feast that Absalom had asked David to come to, he'd been a little suspicious. Evidently not the case now. Go in peace, he says. Which would be the last words that David would ever say to Absalom. The plans in place, 200 men from Jerusalem were invited. They went in their innocence and knew nothing. The text says, verse 12, brings us then to the final point of this section. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city in Galo. And the conspiracy, the narrator calls it, grew strong. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. Now, we'll learn a little more about Ahithophel next week. But he was an esteemed counselor of the king. But perhaps the key thing to know about him in this context is that Ahithophel was none other than the grandfather of Bathsheba. Meaning that this whole thing is still linked with David's sin. Do you see? This is Absalom's rebellion. Absolutely. And it was a successful one. But even as it is Absalom who was rebelling, and even as Absalom acts wrongly in opposing the anointed one of the Lord, it is still the Lord's word of judgment back from chapter 10 or 12, excuse me, chapter 12, where Nathan speaks it, that's still reaching its fulfillment. Absalom and his carefully crafted rebellion constitute the threatened disaster that Nathan foretold. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Which brings us then to the second and somewhat surprising second part of our passage now from verse 13 of chapter 15 all the way to the middle of chapter 16. This is the exile of David from Jerusalem. 
Now, David's exile, you would have noticed, is narrated in a unique way. It's you, you get the geographical notes along the way, but then what really is happening is you have a series of interactions with five individuals as David keeps moving east out of Jerusalem. The first three you could call friends of David. The last two you could call enemies of David. But the challenging thing is that I think each interaction teaches us something. And at least for four out of the five, the thing that I'm trying to highlight for us is what I started with in the sermon. That though we're not quite expecting it, David's flight here, David's darkest day, becomes the vehicle for the narrator to highlight David's faith. And so let me just make this point right up front. Sometimes it's only when the Lord brings us to a low point that we realize it took getting there for our faith to be awakened. I don't know if that resonates with you or not, or if you've ever experienced that. It's not that it always works that way. But there are times in my observation as a pastor, I think when to awaken faith in our lives, the Lord may bring us down to the bottom of some situation. Sometimes we're taken through dark days. Maybe like David, it's the consequence of significant sin in our lives. And maybe like David, what we may find is that it's in those dark days that faith begins to shine once again. I use the image often in my preaching of the life of faith being like a roller coaster. Well, then David's just been down at the bottom. And it's fascinating to see how the narrator begins to show that faith begins to awaken here at this point. David knows it's time to run. When he receives the word of Absalom's success in verse 13, he orders the flight in verse 14. Arise, let us flee, or else they will, there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. This makes good strategic sense. David knows what besieging a city means. He couldn't even have been sure whether Jerusalem still contained supporters of Absalom. It's right to leave. It will pull away with him those who are with him. (laughs) But friends, it would be hard to overemphasize the significance in the narrative of David's exile from Jerusalem. All the momentum of David's story to this point has been toward Jerusalem. There is a terrible sadness about this retreat. And it's played at many levels in the narrative. For example, there is a use of a Hebrew verb that means to pass by or to cross over that is used some nine times just between verses 18 and 33 of chapter 15. Well, that same verb, meaning to cross over or to pass by, occurs 
22 times in the key chapters of Joshua 3 and 4, where it refers to the crossing of the Jordan and the entry of the people of Israel into the promised land. Right? In a way, David's departure from Jerusalem is made to sound like a reversal. A reversal of the entry into the land itself, even, you see. And in that way, some scholars suggest this even begins to preview the coming exile of God's people from the land later in our history. Well, all we know is that at this point it appears that all is lost. I mean, what becomes of David now? What would become of David's kingdom? And yet, though the hearts of the men of Israel had gone after Absalom, the text tells us David's servants who were with him in Jerusalem were faithful. Look at verse 15. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house, which tragically comes back to haunt the scene next week. And then verse 17 says, And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And then there's this poignant moment there on the outskirts of the city. And evidently they stand there for a bit, which is perhaps the moment when you as the reader, you're meant to realize this is the king leaving the city of David. Right? How different this is from the day when David triumphantly took the city in chapter 5. How different this is from when David joyfully brought the ark into the city in chapter 6. The king's faithful servants and soldiers march past him there, verse 18 says, and it includes, surprisingly, a number of of Gittites, Philistines from Gath, not just Israelites, which is significant in itself. And then, with this poignant moment before us, begins the sequence of the five interactions. And we cannot say everything about all of them. I do want to at least sketch what we see happening and try to reflect on what we learn from David's awakening faith here. So we'll move through them quickly. First is Ittai the Gittite, beginning in verse 19. David is magnanimous here. He wonders why this foreigner should put his own life in danger by accompanying him as he flees. Why does Ittai not remain in Jerusalem, offer his services to Absalom, to whom David refers already as the king? Well, this is a refreshing start of the exile for David. This isn't this isn't the David we've been seeing recently. This isn't the calculating, self-absorbed, inactive David. This is David offering what the narrator calls steadfast kindness. Chesed. You'd be reminded of a few earlier moments in Samuel with that language if you were here for that. David graciously looks to Ittai's advantage when it would have been very much in his self-interest to take Ittai and as many men as possible with him. Right? 
Ittai's response is equally amazing. Verse 21, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be, he says. Or in other words, Ittai insists only David is the king. He holds nothing back. Even his children will go with him in following David. It's remarkable. There's something beautiful even, something instructive in that response. That despite the enormous danger to their lives, Ittai and his followers remain loyal to God's king. How does Paul put something like that in Philippians chapter 1? As we relate to Christ, it is my eager expectation and hope, Paul says, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Allegiance to God's king. And you know, the text doesn't say anything about this at this point. So this is just me, but I can't help but think that Ittai's commitment here had to have affected David. That it must have been a welcome support for David's waking faith in this moment. Perhaps it's part of why David's faithfulness continues through this chapter's sadnesses. Verse 23 explains what happens now as David moves on and all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by and the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on, hear all this language, toward the wilderness. The brook Kidron marked a boundary on the east side of Jerusalem. Later in the Bible, in Kings, for example, it becomes the site of things that are cast out of the city. The point is that they are going toward the wilderness We're reminded, I think, we're meant to be reminded of the time when Israel had no land, no place for security, the wilderness wanderings. One commentator puts it, nothing could suggest the end of David's kingdom and the loss of all it represented more vividly than this procession of David and his people toward the wilderness. But that's when, secondly, we have our second our second interaction here with Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, in verse 24. Turns out, under Zadok's orders, the Levites had brought the Ark of the Covenant along, and the assumption seems to be that where King David goes, there the Ark has to go, but David won't have it. Carry the Ark of God back into the city, he orders. And we're beginning to see even more clearly just where David's at. He seems to understand that the Ark of the Covenant of God, representing the promises of God, belonged in the city. Listen to David's strengthening faith, I argue, in verse 25. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, David says, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place, his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Oh, brothers and sisters, there's a sentence worth taking with you out of this text to think and pray over and examine yourselves concerning. 
let him do to me what seems good to him. Because it all rests on grace. I like what one commentator says here. This is not weak resignation. This is robust submission. Here is the freedom of faith in the will of God. All depends on him. I must not use God, the ark, but submit to him. And he will do as he pleases. I suggest to you this is true faith. To trust ultimately in the goodness and wisdom of God, whatever that might involve. But then watch how David acts on that faith in verse 27. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Oh, note this. Note this about David's action. Acknowledging that God was sovereignly in control did not preclude David implementing measures that he intended to defeat Absalom's rebellion. David's recognition that his fate was in God's hands didn't mean he'd sit back, do nothing, and passively await the predetermined outcome. (laughs) No, he took the initiative to thwart Absalom's revolt. I mean, this is looking more like the David we knew. But there are lessons there for us in that too, aren't there? We learn both to trust in God's sovereignty wholeheartedly and to work actively in what we believe the Lord would have us do in the circumstances of our lives. Well, verse 30 then brings us to the final stage of the procession from the city. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered and all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. The text tells us as he climbs the Mount of Olive, David is told about Ahithophel's desertion to Absalom. And the king then utters a prayer, a heartfelt pointed prayer that whatever counsel Bathsheba's grandfather gives to Absalom will turn to foolishness. It's that prayer, in fact, that then brings us to the third encounter that's recorded in our passage. Because no sooner do you hear David pray that than you see the answer to his prayer. Hushai the archite, another one of David's advisors. I think David sees Hushai is Yahweh's answer to his cry. Verse 34, if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then, David says, you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Oh, so here's another lesson about faith. Notice how David can combine prayer that the Lord will turn Ahithophel's counsel to foolishness and take his own initiative to send Hushai back to Jerusalem to counter Ahithophel's advice. In other words, David understood that prayer and action are not inconsistent, but in fact work in tandem. There's no contradiction between asking the Lord to cause something to happen 
and then working hard to make that very thing come about. David's faith, I am trying to suggest to you, is indeed awakening. And the Lord's timing is perfect. Verse 37, so Hushai, David's friend or advisor, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Now, it's worth thinking about that briefly. Consider this. We talked already about how the Lord was permitting Absalom to displace David from Jerusalem in fulfillment of the Lord's word of judgment at the same time as the Lord was also arranging for Hushai to answer David's prayer to be sent to meet Absalom in Jerusalem precisely for the purpose of undermining the rebel king. It's a little more involved than we thought. Now, time's running out. I don't need to say much, in my view, about the fourth encounter that David has with Ziba because there's not a clear point to be made in terms of David's faith here. In fact, if anything, David kind of goofs in this moment because if you remember Ziba, Ziba was the one that David had made the manager of the assets of Mephibosheth. Sorry, you've not been here. You're like, what is he talking about? Back in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, if you recall this whole thing, about Mephibosheth. I'll just give you my read on this, which is that Ziba's lying. He appears to be generous and loyal and grateful, but when you come to chapter 19, when we come to chapter 19, we'll hear Mephibosheth himself give a very different account of Ziba here. So I I think David made a snap judgment, which he tries to undo later in chapter 19. The bottom line is, I don't think Ziba's being loyal to David as the Lord's king. I think he's seeking his own gain. So I'm just going to, that's the fourth one. I'm going to pass over that now. (laughs) Go right to the fifth and the final encounter we'll talk about here that David has that begins in verse 5 of chapter 16. This is with Shimei, the descendant of Saul's family. And the end of verse 5 says that as Shimei came, he cursed continually, meaning he cursed David continually. And if I'm reading this narrative anywhere close to right, I think it's in this fifth encounter then that we see David's faith at the strongest it's been since before chapter 11. Shimei poses no real threat to David, physically speaking, right? Verse 6 says he threw stones, but all the people and all the mighty men were on David's right hand and on his left, it says. In fact, I had to chuckle when Anna read it. I didn't notice this before, but towards the end in verse 13. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. I mean, you just get the idea that David's not really in danger, physically speaking here. Nonetheless, Abishai, Joab's brother, of course, wants to just do away with him, since headless people don't insult you. Why put up with this? I mean, this is Abishai and Joab, right? Notice notice what Shimei claims is the issue, though, in verse 8, in his cursing in the words that he's speaking. The Lord has avenged on you, David, all the blood of the house of Saul, he says. 
in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. You see, Shimei seems to be reflecting here what was likely a view of others in the house of Saul, that David, in fact, had a hand in the deaths of Abner and Ishbosheth, who are in Saul's line, back in chapters 3 and 4 of 2 Samuel, if you can even remember back that far. But if you can, you know that our narrator was keen to show that David, in fact, wasn't responsible for those deaths. The point being that Shimei's accusations are technically false. David was not being avenged for the blood of the house of Saul. But now here comes the the insight. You see, because to David and to us as readers, we know that Shimei's words, though technically false, did contain an element of truth as well. Your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood, he curses. Well, indeed, David was a man of blood, even if it wasn't the blood Shimei thought it was. And indeed, we've seen the Lord's hand was behind the troubles that had come on David's kingdom. We know that. David knew that too. And so David refuses Abishai's offer to do away with Shimei. Look at the order he gives at the end of verse 11. Leave him alone, David says, and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. And I, I will oversimplify the point, but I think what's happening here is that David could see that the Lord's had his own purposes in Shimei cursing him. That is, David could understand that he was supposed to now receive the curses of Shimei in the light of God's purpose, not for actions against Saul's house, but for his sin of chapters 11 and 12. But David also could see something else significant, I think, in this challenging moment. David could see that the Lord's purposes would go beyond this, beyond this cursing. You see, here we are now at the end of this account of David's exile from Jerusalem, this darkest day for David. And what has he come to? He has come to rely in the end, I suggest, on the grace of God. He didn't know how, he didn't know when, but David was hoping expectantly that he would receive good from the Lord. Now, I think maybe that's where we ought to end up as well, brothers and sisters, when we perhaps move through dark days of our own. I like how one commentator summarizes this point, so I'll quote him at length. Here we go. Should this word not come as special hope to Christians who believe they've made a royal curse job of their lives? Christians who at some point, perhaps with open eyes, have smashed God's commandments and defied his standards 
and then suffered miserably for it. Repentance and forgiveness have come, yet they are sure God only regards them with grudging toleration, and sometimes they doubt the toleration. They are, they think, doomed to the junkyard of Christian existence. But what if they can get a glimpse of David's God? What if they can say, it may be, of him? What if they have a God who can look at guilt and return good? You see, the Lord who had seen David's iniquity had in fact acted in judgment against David for his iniquity would in due course return good to David. That's finally the grace on which David depends. Ultimately, I suggest that's the grace on which we all depend. So that on this sad day, even as he understood the Lord's judgment against his own sin and accepted it, David had learned what he concludes in Psalm 3, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Now, brothers and sisters, That sort of ends the sermon proper. There's one other postscript I'd like to give you. Because I can't but mention it, as we are now going to come to move towards communion, let me offer you this connection. Because perhaps you noticed it as we read, but there would be another Davidic king who, together with his followers on one dark night, would go out from the city of Jerusalem, would cross the brook Kidron, would climb the Mount of Olives. This long-promised son of David was a king who also submitted to the will of his father, That king, too, would receive the cursing of his enemies as the Lord's will for him. Only, of course, the difference being that that king wasn't a man of blood like David was. And so you could imagine him saying, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. And in fact, that would be the salvation of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.